Friday. Today is October 16th, and I am Dr. Ray Mitch, your host for the Psych Monologues. It is my pleasure and delight to spend a little time with you today, whenever that might be. A little word about the Psych Monologues, in case you're listening for the first time. Um, I keep repeating it. The Psych Monologues is a podcast. It's devoted to exploring our journey toward wholeness and living in the truth and grace while embracing the the profound mystery of our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with each other. And that's the overarching purpose of this podcast, which means I can roam pretty much anywhere I want. That's pretty much what that means. And that's, uh, that's what it ends up being for the next 20 or 25 minutes, is I find a topic, I land on it, it's something that's been... Uh, niggling in the back of my brain from time spent teaching or uh, uh, just thinking about my own relationships and what goes on in them. And that's that's a lot of what I bring to you as my audience is observations, maybe some insight that you can use uh, in uh, your relationships to do what we're trying to do here in terms of getting at this profound mystery of being in relationship with one another and what it does to our hearts and souls and how it reflects our relationship with God and the people around us. So uh, what I want to talk about tonight is something that sounds a little like out of the, the pages of military code, and it's called the rules of engagement. And in, in terms of the military, we'll just start there tonight. Uh, they're really the internal rules and directives uh, to that define the circumstances, the conditions, the degree, and even the manner in which uh, the use of force, and this is in a military context, or actions might be construed as provocative. So they first define the things that that would have to be determined as provocative and then they they set forth the limits the rules of engagement to uh, either address that somehow it tells what we is expected to do what the result is and hopefully it says something about what is unacceptable so it creates this fencing around the the engagement between the combatants at least in a military sense what i want to pivot to and it's something that i've been thinking a lot about lately is what are, what are the rules of engagement if we are operating from a base of shame <clears throat> versus what are the rules of engagement if we are operating from a base of grace and so let me let me unpack this a little bit we've got some time uh, and and the 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 things that occur to me based on what I have seen over the years in talking to people, uh, is is that the rules of engagement in shame overarchingly uh, de- determine using measures that to control outcome. That's the easiest way to put it. Now, we can have a lot of different um, strategies we use to uh, bring about the outcome we desire. Now, the outcome is kind of the key in terms of the rules of engagement that we use. So our, we can use an intimidational 
way of controlling things. So I power up on somebody uh, when they're not doing what I want or they're expressing opinion I don't like. I power up on them and intimidate them and they fall back. And then all is well in the world again. It's trying to establish this is how our relationship's going to go. This is how you behave in it. And if you don't behave in it, there are specific uh, uh, consequences to that. Another alternative is not the intimidation alternative, but it is um, withdrawal. I mean, in a lot of cases, we have this propensity to punish one another by our absence. Now, that says something about what we believe is important to the other person. Because obviously to the other person, our presence matters. So now I can punish somebody by withdrawing my presence from them in order to accomplish some end, whatever that might be. Now, obviously that may be that I want them to feel guilty for what they've done. I withdraw. They feel guilty. They come to me and say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say it that way or do it that way. And then I've got the choice if I'm the withdrawer. I've got the choice as to whether or not I say, that's okay, which it rarely is. Or I, I say, I'm, I'm not so sure, which I, I still maintain a certain sense of power when I withhold any kind of reconciliation from the other person. So we control is really the overarching aspect of shame. It's not only a way that we use to control ourselves, but it's also the way that we end up trying to control one another. Another one that I I like to highlight is how we rob the other person of their choices. And and that's more in the line of persuasion or influence. And, And I might ask somebody to do something for me or I want them to do something for me. I I don't want to ask because that's a little too bold. And they show some measure of resistance. And then I begin to lop off all the reasons why they should say no to me. And so in essence, the rules of engagement in shame have to do with no is not an acceptable answer. And I will use the shame that it probably is already existent in you to get you to do the things that I want. Now, this sounds this sounds like doggy dog world. This this sounds ruthless. The thing I would have you pay attention to is whatever we do with ourselves when it comes to shame, saying we're the worst, we, we uh, can't do anything right, we'll never be enough, we're always inadequate, we find ways oftentimes to externalize that into our relationships and we find that it is extremely effective to move the other person towards something we want them to do, whether that's stay in relationship with us and not leave us, or whether that's doing something we want them to do, or any number of things like that. And and we're using what we oftentimes call making them feel guilty or making them feel obligated because we've done so much for them. And see, that brings us really to another aspect of rules of engagement when it comes to shame, and that is it's about a contract. Or better yet, it's about a trade. I do things for you, and I keep doing those things for you, but I am, I, am, I am keeping an eye on the ledger. 
And when it comes time for me to ask you to do something, you really don't have the right to say no because of all that I've done for you. And, and you see, we've seen multiple interactions, whether on the screen or on media or something else, where somebody says to the other person, after all I've done to you, this is how you treat me? And see, that language is a, is a language of contract. It, it's saying, I've been watching, I've been keeping my ledger going, and it's really out of balance, and now it's time for me to call my markers in. See, we've got all this in our language. Call my markers in, and because of this ledger being so imbalanced, you are duty-bound to respond. So it always ends up getting them moving to our desired outcome. The other one we sometimes do is we limit freedom to get some kind of desired outcome. Now, this is very similar to robbing somebody of a choice. Now, let me give you an idea of how this works. And um, it it kind of uh, folds together, this idea of limiting freedom and robbing one of choice. I, I... lead groups at CCU a lot. I I have two different classes that have a a group component in it where students have to sit and look each other in the eye, which is about all we can see with masks on, and and, uh, interact and talk about life and talk about the history that they come from and the things that they still beat themselves up about in a lot of ways. And I, I, I had one interaction with somebody just today about this very thing because the emphasis was on I I control myself. I control myself so tightly and so stringently in order to accomplish some end. Not because that's, that's uh, as the Bible would have us believe, part of self-control, which it is. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But it's... It, 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 I do it for some end, and that end is I so tightly control things so that people will behave in a particular way, they will do certain things, they won't leave me, and in this case, what we were talking about was to avoid conflict. And see, we that's almost glorifying it to say that that's self-control. Because really, it's control that's directed. It, it, it is controlling myself, but it always has this string attached that if I do it this way, then, and that's how it goes, if, then, if I do it this way, then the other person won't be mad or won't withdraw or won't be sad or won't be disappointed. And you see, we're robbing them of the choice, if you want to put it that way, to... to be disappointed. I mean, I don't think we would ever look anybody in the eye and say, you're not allowed to be disappointed because I did something that hurt you or I didn't come through or whatever. I don't, I don't, I'm almost sure that not one person would ever look somebody in the eye and say, no, you can't do that. Yet we behave in such a way to prevent them from doing that, which is every bit as controlling as looking them in the eye and prohibiting them from having that particular emotion. You see, uh, controlling, we have we the, this whole thing, and shame, shame is the fuel for controlling each other. But the controlling thing is 
we have a, a stereotyped understanding of what controlling is. We think it's the powering up, intimidating, rolling over boundaries, uh, tank kind of person, doesn't take no for an answer, all of those things. And that kind of controller we can see miles away. But we use that as the standard to say that's what controlling is. And I, I had a number of people say, even today, I never thought of myself as a controlling person. And my response is, well, you're not a controlling person, but you do controlling things. And that's there's a difference there. Because a controlling person is where the shame comes in. It's about my personhood. But when I say I struggle with doing controlling things is a performance thing. It's choices I make. It's behaviors I engage in. And I can change those. But if it's about my person, I'm woe is me. I'm stuck. I, I That's not going to change anytime soon. And so the, the overt, what I call overt controller is very easy to pick out. The one that isn't quite so easy to pick out is what I refer to as the covert controller. And the covert controller is controlling things by how they frame and think about things, not so much by what they do. Because in a lot of cases, I can control somebody else's behavior by what I choose not to do. Every bit as much as what I do do. <laughs> and it is do-do. <laughs> so I <clears throat> this thing about controlling and how shame is that, that operational force underneath it is we we know because we know each other how shame operates because it operates in us and then we inadvertently kind of capitalize on that same force in the other person by the ways that we interact by the things we don't do the things we withhold the things we try to prevent and we're robbing them of the choice to respond freely. Now, they don't know that. I, I get that. They don't know that. But I do. And I get reinforced, if you want to use behavioral terms, I get reinforced for doing it because guess what? It works. It works until you bump into somebody who, who um, denies the attempt to control them. And says, you know, I I really would rather not. And and then we pull out other cards to play, you know, uh, either withdrawal or silence or other things. And if they're still unmoved, then oftentimes we power up, and and then we get intimidating or we get forceful in our delivery of of that. So control the the rules of engagement when it comes to shame is controlling outcomes that's the rules of engagement and in a lot of cases the other thing that's part of it which uh, Brene Brown who's written a lot about shame says is that if, if shame is driving the car then or if pardon me if perfectionism is driving the car then shame is sitting shotgun and fear is in the back seat and fear is the other thing that that we capitalize off of in that same way of living in fear of losing the relationship or being a bad friend or being perceived as a bad friend or all of those things. And, and we, we collude with one another to do that kind of stuff. Now, on the other side of this coin is what's the rules of engagement when it comes to grace in relationships? 
And this one, this one is not necessarily the mirror image of what I just described as the rules of engagement for shame. But the rules of engagement for grace is about expanding freedom, about empowering people to be free. There is no if then. There is a request and there is an answer. And that answer is accepted as is. So it expands freedom. It, it empowers choice. Uh, oftentimes, striving to be a safe person in another person's life means that I remind them time and again that no is an acceptable answer. And, and it also includes being shame resistant, which means we have our own work to do about the role that shame plays in our language and in our framing. I had, and, and, you know, one of the kind of the routine I have when I'm teaching in a class is I, I do a lot of setup. I use a fair amount of technology in my classes. So I'm setting up and I, I can hear conversations that students are having with one another. And one student that I overheard said, I, I don't know where it is. I must have lost it. I'm just dumb. And, and that's, that's a good example of that interior narrative language that we don't, we're not even aware is going on. And I, I, I couldn't help myself. I, I probably should have stepped on my tongue. But I said, you might have lost it, but it doesn't have to do anything with your intelligence. It doesn't mean you're dumb. Of course, he didn't hear me and moved on. But <clears throat> I think with the rules of engagement for grace is that, I model what shame resistance looks like and I model my language begins to change. It's not overnight just because I use the right words doesn't mean that I'm going to be shame resistant, but I have to practice catching myself doing these things. And, and what I'm modeling in this is not only shame resistance, but acceptance, acceptance, not only of my own flaws and shortcomings, but also the acceptance and empowerment of others and what that means for them. It doesn't mean winking at unacceptable behavior. And what I mean by that is somebody being abusive or somebody continuing to kind of hurt themselves over and over again. Well, that we do that in minor ways, not significant ways. But being gracious doesn't mean being silent about that stuff. Actually, we, we, we have really distorted our understanding of what grace is, as if it's some kind of milk toast, um, just kind of, uh, you, you kind of lay down and take it and that kind of, no, I, I, I honestly, that is, if Jesus, Jesus was described as a man full of truth and grace, he did not model that. He would not sit still and he would not be silent when things were said that were counter to what God's heart for his people were. And I think we have that same obligation. It's I can do it and deliver it with grace, which means freedom, which means all of the things I just mentioned. But I still am, am, am going to articulate those things in whatever that relationship might be. So that's a short, quick, condensed understanding of the rules of engagement for shame and the rules of engagement for grace. Now, the logical next question is, well, how do I move from one to the other? And 
as I am prone to say, I am not going to give you 12 quick, quick steps to move toward grace-based engagement. <laughs> that would not be fair. As a matter of fact, it would be irrelevant because there's no way that I can do that for any single person. How I find this out, though, is is in conversation and dialogue. And asking questions and learning how to frame things up. I, I am... All of my students that are in my shame and grace class read two really good sources. One is Philip Yancey's book about grace, What's So Amazing About Grace. And the other one is Brene Brown's books about shame. Now, I will, I will say, Brene Brown doesn't talk a lot about grace in her books as the antidote for shame. And in my very humble opinion, I don't have nearly the stature that Brene Brown does. But grace is the antidote for the poison of shame in our relationships because it talks about freedom. And that's, that's a journey. That's a dialogue. That is about relationship. That includes all of those things that if you look at Jesus' ministry, even in, in, uh, when he was here on earth, that describes his ministry. The thing that differentiates him from us is that he had the exquisite ability, of course he was God, so he could do that, to differentiate when someone needed some hard truth and when somebody needed grace. And the one rule of thumb, I would say, and again, this is just me, but the one rule of thumb I might give somebody is to say, lead with grace. And then engage the conversation around truth or the dialogue around truth because the bigger picture which is something i talked about earlier is that we got to be clear about what kind of truth we're talking about if it's someone's internal unique individual truth then i better be pretty slow at pontificating about it with big t truth as i've called it and I, I step back and I listen and try to understand the nature of how they see the world before I start jumping in and telling them how it should be. Oftentimes, whenever we use that word should, it is directly related to another SH word. No, not the one that might come to your mind right now, but shame. Shame and should are very much connected. And when I use the word should in my relationships and language with other people, I would, uh, what I have noticed is it triggers shame in somebody because it creates an absolutistic standard of how things should be. And nobody's going to measure up to that. And whenever we don't measure up to it, we always land on the same answer. I'll never be enough. I'll never be good enough. I'll always be inadequate. I can never do any of this thing right, and I might as well give up now. And that's that's just a rule of thumb. It's not hard and fast. It changes from within the context of the relationships that we're talking about here. But I would encourage you to that point is to begin to learn how to frame your world in grace terms and understand grace fully so that you can pick out how much of our internal language and the language we use with one another is shame-based, and then begin to move toward using that kind of language even in your relationships with key people in your life. 
because it will add depth. It adds uncertainty. I'm not going to deny that. It will add uncertainty. But at the same time, where uncertainty is, there's an opportunity for intimacy. (laughs) Yeah, I said that. Where uncertainty is, there's an opportunity for intimacy. Because then knowing another is not built on all the things I can categorize and get certain in my mind, but knowing another is entering into their world and allowing them to define that world, not me. And that falls into for what it's worth. Well, that's it for tonight. A few reminders, as always. Um, we are uh, embarking on um, the silent retreat this weekend for the fall. I'm so excited to do this, uh, even if it is masked. And um, But we have a group of, of students going, and uh, I will come back with reports and maybe even some interviews uh, that uh, I can share with you about people that have been at that retreat. This has been much looked for, looked forward to. Uh, we have had to do a lot of self-funding in order to make this thing happen. Um, and uh, there has been a great deal of um, generosity and graciousness to make this possible from a variety of people. Uh, but I would encourage you that if you're listening and, and um, you would like to partner with us, even little donations, 25 bucks, 10 bucks, whatever it is on a regular basis over time would really, really be helpful because we've got another retreat scheduled in the spring. And I, I would love to be able to, to gather together enough partners and enough donors to be able to support this next one so that it isn't quite so steep in how expensive it is for students to participate. So if you're interested, the the GoFundMe site is now back up and running. It was uh, paused for a period of time uh, because of change of servers by the GoFundMe site. So it's back up and running. Please uh, be sure if you're interested and uh, want to help, hit the website at drmitch.com and go to the drop-down menu under CCU to the Silent Retreats and please donate. It would be much, much appreciated and be a great blessing for students that really can't afford it. Two other things which are related, please be sure to subscribe so that you get the updates of, of when a new podcast podcast comes out. Uh, you can do that either on the website in the upper right-hand corner when I add new material, uh, a podcast included, or uh, on Podbean, raymitch at podbean.com. You can uh, subscribe there and get the app and all of that if you're interested in doing that as well. One remind, one one uh, note to, to bring to you is that uh, this past Monday I did a talk, I think I mentioned it in the last podcast, um, called Surviving or Thriving During a, a Global Pandemic. Uh, and I, I survived it, <laughs> literally. I think there were portions of it that I thrived my way through. Um, and so it is up on the website uh, today. I put it up a couple nights ago, I think. Um, and so it's there live. If you want to watch it and listen and, and uh, take notes, that would be, that, that would be fantastic. I, I would just pray that it would be helpful for you. Um, one last thing. I know there's a number of last things here, but... Um, we've been beginning to 
uh, uh, build up a Q&A base of questions that people might have based on something I say or things that they see in relationships and things like that. Uh, so if, if a question strikes you during, during the podcast or any of the other ones, uh, go, to the, uh, go to the website, use the Q&A Q form under the podcast title. Um, or the alternative would be is to um, try out our new uh, shiny uh, new um, uh, Instagram channel with the psych monologues, uh, all one word, uh, that you can uh, post a question uh, or a question there as well. So please do so. I, I will. I'm hoping to devote one podcast episode to two or three questions that pop up there if uh, um, if we can gather a few of them. We've already had one. Thank you very much for the listener out there in California. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, and we'll, we'll gather more together and do two or three of them at once and call it an episode and move on from there. So I think that's it for tonight. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, and as always, love you. Later. Bye.